So I'm Steve Shambaugh, and usually Anne Marie's up here, but she's out of town this weekend um, with the kids, vacation with the family. So you're stuck with me. Um, thank you. See? At this table, that's right. This table's a little less encouraging, but that's okay. I'm used to it. Um, so uh, the only announcement I have is we've got a sign-up sheet for snacks, and this morning the Boyles brought breakfast. Thank you for doing that. So if you hadn't had a chance to get some, go get some. Um, we've only got a couple more spots open, um, so I'll leave that in the back. You can check it and see if you, can, if you want to sign up. So this morning we've got John and Liz Crocker here to talk to us, and I've got their intro. Uh, John and Liz Crocker have been married for 43 years and have one son, Desmond, who lives in Rhode Island and has nine-year-old twins. John is senior pastor here at Faith from 76 to 86 before serving in pastoral roles in California and Illinois. They are now living in the Indianapolis area and attend Faith when they are not traveling or have other commitments. Uh, they enjoy exploring the United States and reading when they have, to have spare time. Um, I'll pray for us, and then we'll have them come up and share their story. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this morning and uh, for all the people that are here. Thank you for John and Liz and uh, their amazing story that they get to share with us, and that it's, uh, Lord, that it's your story. Um, just thank you for all you've done in their lives, and just pray that um, we can just have a great uh, morning listening to uh, what you've done. In your name we pray. Amen. Yeah, I think I'll start here. Thank you. Good morning. Before I begin, I have wanted to do, do this for a number of years. If you were here when John and I had the privilege of serving, would you raise your hand for me, just if any of you? <laughs> Thanks, honey. Thank you. I just want to thank you for being a significant part of my faith story. You have written so many things upon my heart in my ministry, and I just want to tell you today, thank you so much. Thank you. I grew up in a Christ-filled house. Um, my grandparents, my grandmother was from um, Holland, and I spent a lot of time with Grandma and Grandpa, and they had this really cool thing they did every time I was there. First thing in the morning, they would sit holding hands, and they would start praying. And they would pray around the world for our family, for my spouse, for my children, which I thought was ridiculous, you know, at four and five. And there was just such a strong sense of Christ every time I was with them. My um, grandmother, uh, maternal grandmother, did not come to, from England, did not come to know the Lord until hours before she died. So I didn't have that influence from Grandma, but she was a strong presence every summer that she would come to be with us. Um, my daddy. <laughs> One of the most Christ-filled people you could ever meet. His joy was not contained. It just, 
he was a magnet that when he went somewhere, people were drawn to him. He didn't have to say anything. He just had to smile at them. He just had to look at them. He just had to connect with them. He had a voice that could rival any country western singer. When we would be at church, at first I was a little embarrassed because you'd hear this twanging, amazing grace. And I would be kind of cowering in my seat and people would be kind of looking over and smiling. And he was just, he was worshiping. My mom, being from England, was the quieter, more reserved. Servant heart, she loved having missionaries stay with us. She loved having six kids. She just thought that was how everybody should live their life with lots of kids running around the house. And all of our friends were welcome. And my friends would come to my mom when they had tough things going on in their life. And I can still see her taking <laughs> the mound of laundry. My mom always had a tea kettle going and laundry like this. And she'd part like the Red Sea. And she'd sit down and she'd say, oh, let me get you a cup of tea and a little banana bread that just came out of the oven and let's talk. And I'm probably exaggerating her accent, but that's how she sounded to me. And she would sit and she would talk and listen to my friends. I have three awesome big sisters. I have um, a sister that when I was three years old was born and died shortly after she was born. And then I have a little sister and brother. And I am so grateful that all of these siblings know and love the Lord and are serving the Lord. When I was four years old, I had this awesome teacher. Her name was Mrs. Kraft. She had this white little mound of hair, <laughs> big blue eyes, and she smelled like violets. I used to always give her a little hug because I wanted to smell the violets every Sunday. Mrs. Kraft loved us. She loved us unconditionally, and there were a lot of us. And she would always talk about being a lamb of God. You know, we, we want to be lambs of God. We want to be a lamb of God. And one day I went up to her, I pulled on, four years old, pulled on her dress and she said, yes. And I said, how does a little girl like me become a lamb? How do I become a lamb of God? And she laughed, tinkly laugh, and explained to me what it meant to be a lamb of God. I went home that day pondering, very ponderous, you know, had, had my Sunday dinner and um, about 7 o'clock that night, there was an electrical storm. This is November near Chicago. I grew up just south of Chicago. And there's this electrical storm. And I'm thinking about being a Lamb of God. And I'm thinking, what if our house is struck by lightning? And all these things are going through my mind. And all of a sudden, my dad appeared. And if you can't tell, he was my hero. My dad appeared, and he's like, called me Billy. I don't know why. I'm Elizabeth. Anyway, Billy, what's up? And I'm like, Daddy? I just learned today what it means to be a Lamb of God, and I want to be a Lamb of God, but I'm also afraid. What are you afraid of? Well, I'm afraid of this and that, and I said, Dad, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I need Jesus in my life, and he knelt by my bed that day, or that evening, excuse me, and, and I accepted the Lord as my Savior. And I, I meant to bring his very worn Bible. I was given his Bible when he passed away in 1983 at the age of 61. That was entrusted to me, and he wrote in there my name and that I had given my heart to Jesus. So that Bible is very special to me. After that day, I prayed for three things. 
Number one, I prayed for a brave heart. I'm sort of short, in case you haven't noticed, and I wanted to be really brave for Jesus. I did not want to be afraid of anything. Number two, I prayed that I would love all the people that Jesus had put on this earth, that I would love them with all my heart. And number three, this isn't so good, I prayed that I would never, ever be a minister's wife. <laughs> God has a sense of humor. So I started out and I tried to love everybody and I would sit on my dad's lap on Sunday. I was shy then. And I would watch all the people interact with each other and I would see Mrs. Magruder, whatever, wasn't talking to Mrs. Smith. But this one over here was embracing everybody and loving everybody. And then there were the people that I, at that time, I didn't know the word, but the invisible people at church that nobody acknowledged, that people walked around, they didn't talk to them. And so I thought to myself at the age of four, I asked for a loving heart. You give me those people. I'll go talk to those people. So this little tiny girl would kind of walk through the church, and I would go and I would talk and try to get to know these people, and they were probably a little confused, but... You know, I, I just felt like that's what I should do. The brave heart, I decided that because God lived inside of me, there was nothing I should be afraid of. So at about four, four and a half, I told my dad, if you hear a noise at night, don't worry about it. I'll go check it out. <laughs> you just stay right in the house, Daddy, and I'll just check it out. And I would take my little flashlight. I didn't know he was like steps behind me. And I would go around our house. Well, I lived in an Andy of Mayberry town. There was no crime, none, which, anyway. So I'd be going around my house, and then Dad would quickly go into the house and say, well, did you find anything, Billy? I, nah, Dad, everything's good. We can, we can be okay for this evening. Life continued. I was in school, of course, and something very interesting started to happen. I had friends say to me, you know you're going to be a minister's wife one day, don't you? I'm like, oh, no, I just love people and I love Jesus. Oh, no, you're going to be a minister's wife. We can see it already. But I felt God was taking me in a completely different direction. I was going to be a police officer. <laughs> Forget everything else. I was going to be a police officer. I was going to be a single police officer who just served the Lord, went up the ranks, and protected people. So at the age of 14, I got out my best Sunday dress, my best pair of shoes. I had long hair, put my hair in a big ponytail. And I said to my dad, Dad, I need to go to the local sheriff's department. And he said, okay, fine. As we were driving over, he said, what is your plan? And I said, <laughs> what is your plan? I said, I think that what this sheriff's department needs is, what I was explaining was a police explorer, but I didn't know at the time. They need young people that want to be police officers, and they learn everything about law enforcement. They have a little uniform. They commit to getting good grades in school and never missing school. They learn everything about the Illinois Penal Code, blah, 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 blah. So my dad's like, okay. So he, I had an appointment with the sheriff. He sat in the outer office. I went into the sheriff hall, three feet, whatever, sat myself down, tried to sit as tall as I could. And I proposed this to the sheriff. 
And when I was done, he just kind of pushed himself back, <laughs> looked at me and said, really? I said, really, truly, this is what I think we need to do. So after much pondering, my parents signing away their house, their car, their birthrights, whatever, that they would not hold the sheriff's department responsible for anything that might happen when I was with, um, with them on duty. I began, began this illustrious career. I call it illustrious. Um, I had a sergeant that when we were patrolling, now I'm 14 years old, he'd say, what vehicle just passed us like two minutes ago? What was the vehicle? Who is in the vehicle? Um, describe the vehicle, all of these things. So I had to be very alert, which really helped me in my education. I found I became a lot more astute at school. I was right on it. So anyway, I, I started doing this, and what I found over time as I grew older, I did this from about 14 to 18, what I found is them respecting me helped me to respect myself even more. I became more diligent. I became more aware I became more confident as a person during this time. Well, I felt everything was good and great, but then I had my own church that I was attending after I graduated from high school and was pursuing law enforcement, and my parents came home one Sunday. I was there for dinner and said, there is this new young British pastor at our church, and I said, oh, well, yes. That's great. Hope you enjoy him, Mom. You'll, you're going to particularly enjoy, you know, having another Brit in the church and that. And my dad said, Bill, you need to come hear him. There's something very special, <laughs> special about this man. And I resisted, and I resisted. And one day my dad said to me, you know what? You don't have to come to church. I'm going to invite him for dinner. So... <laughs> When you, when you join us for dinner, John Crocker is going to be there. And I said, okay, I'll come to your church. I'll take a Sunday off from my church. And I always tell John this story, and I don't know if he still completely understands, but I came to church, and I was in the balcony, and I had my arms crossed, you know, try and, try and engage me try and make me think that you're a good pastor or that you're an effective pastor, whatever. And this handsome young pastor walked out and he prayed and he opened God's word. I had grown up with Christian friends. I was a tomboy, so I didn't have a lot of boyfriends. But I had grown up with a lot of Christian young men in my life who really loved God. But when this man opened the word of God, the word became alive, and it became something that I wanted more of. I wanted to embrace it. I wanted to know Christ the way Pastor John knew Christ. So... I did some uh, recon, and I found out he had Bible studies on Sunday night. <laughs> and I found out that sometimes he led Wednesday night services. And all of a sudden, my sergeant said to me, your writing time has gone way down, and your church attendance has really increased. What's up? Nothing. I'm, that's just where I am. That's my spiritual journey. That's where I am as my nose is growing out to the... Um, so anyway, um, 
the first time I heard him speak, I loved him. And you can't tell me I didn't. I loved this man. I had never told a boy, a man, that I loved them. But when I heard him speak, I fell in love with who he was as a person and in Christ. I loved him. Um, dating was great. Um, writing time was going down more and more. And I was really confused by this because I had this huge barrier that I had placed in between God and me that I knew what was best for my life. God, just, you know, just bear with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what I need. And when I realized I love John Crocker, I realized that the other things didn't count anymore. It was like something flipped inside of me. Something just, it just dissipated. It was gone. It was like I wanted God's will, and, and I wanted John Crocker <laughs> as well. And um, my dilemma was when I got married, my next eldest sister were three years apart. Well, let me tell you about this sister. She wanted to be a minister's wife. She took piano lessons for years and years. She sang with the most beautiful alto voice I ever heard. She would stand when she would speak to people like this. And I just thought, well, she's being groomed for the pastoral, pastoral role. You know, she's, she's going to be the perfect, perfect pastor's wife. Um, I was asked to share a couple of things about early pastorate, so I'll share just two. I did not play the piano. I didn't have time for the piano. I was too busy doing police things. <laughs> My voice, the dogs next door, if I have the window open, they sing with me, if that gives you any indication. So um, I was like, okay, God, you know what you're doing. I don't know what you're do doing, really, at this point in time. I was a brand new pastor's wife, 23 years old and four and a half months pregnant when we arrived here. And I have never known a more loving, embracing, be you church, <laughs> grow into the role church than this one. I mean, I'm looking out at dear faces and I just want, I just want to thank you. Thank you so much. But anyway, back to my story. So I'm invited to a Sunday school class. And I'm like, this is great. Liz, would you go up to the piano? No problem. Liz, would you turn to page 33? Bunch of little kids. No problem. And a one and a two. And I flip around on the bench and I start singing at the top of my voice. And everything just stopped. And it was like, you don't play the piano? You really don't play the piano? No, I really don't play the piano, and it was like, strike one, strike one. Not really, but strike one. Okay, the second thing is I love hair. I always wear my hair ultra short, but I love hair. I love hair magazines. I love hair color. I love new hairstyles. I love everything about hair. And so when I had a little extra time on my hands, I would color my hair in between mornings church. We had evening church in those days and I would color my hair and just you know fun so anyway um, there was this one particular Sunday morning and a woman came up to me introduced herself and said are you Liz and I said I am and she said um, I am brand new at the church and I just wanted to tell you how happy I am to be here and 
thank you for the welcome and all that. And I said, oh, lovely to meet you and, and that. And I went home and colored my hair a completely different color. And that night I came to church and the same lady came up to me and said, um, I'm Mrs. You look familiar, but not quite familiar. And I said, it's me, just a different color. So anyway, that was sort of my reputation. But then what did God teach me? Hmm, taught me profound things. He taught me only God. I can't do anything. I can be brave to a certain degree. I can be loving to a certain degree, but it's not me doing it. It's his strength, his grace, his might. Um, some things that really stick out in my mind are Amy Bowman's wedding, Amy Bowman Christie's wedding. She was one of my pioneer girls. I was a little kid with my kids, teaching them about Jesus and growing and having overnight slumber parties. And they'd say to me, Mrs. Crocker, would you please go to sleep? We're so tired. And I'd say, but I'm so excited. You're all in my home, and I love having you. Um, watching that, watching um, John Mitchell and Luann Mitchell come to the hospital when they thought our son had Rye's syndrome. And um, them loving on me and comforting us. Our son, Des, um, who lives in Rhode Island, was our only child. I wanted five boys, and God gave me a six-foot-four son. So I think he kind of, kind of somehow did something there. Taking um, a little casket <laughs> to the gravesite because... This family had lost a child, and they asked us if we would transport this little casket in the car to the gravesite. And standing with parents who were crushed, they couldn't breathe. The sorrow was so great. Getting a call when John was overseas on one of his missions trip, and having a couple say, our baby has minutes to live. Would you come and pray with us? I was like, Lord, I've never done this before, and what if I don't do the right prayer? And what if, what if, what if, as I'm driving over and coming and just being a mom with a mom and loving that little one and praying and watching that little one slip into eternity? Um, getting the call to another church and looking up and saying, God, really? not going to be like faith. I know it's not going to be like faith. It's not going to be a church that is going to love us unconditionally and input into our lives and let me make mistakes and learn from my mistakes, but love me unconditionally. Our son thought that this church was owned by his dad, if that gives you any idea. He thought that because we were here all the time, this was his church that his daddy owned. It's all of these experiences that um, made me grow in Jesus and learn only God. It's only God that can do anything in any one of our lives and learn to love and trust him. We went to California and, oh, was that a ride um, within... Eight weeks of arriving there, our vehicle was hit six times. 
instead of responding to a 1050, I was a 1050. It was like we had this mark on our car and it was like everybody kept hitting us and being very sad and apologetic for it. It was having people say to me, we're really glad you're here, but you smile a lot. You, you smile all the time. Why are you smiling all the time? And I kind of wanted to say, I don't know why I'm smiling all the time right now, but that's me, that's me. And for the first time, having to really, really look up and say, God, I don't understand this call. John often says to people, the dumbest thing we ever did, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, was to leave Faith Church. I mean, humanly speaking, not God's call on our lives, but this was the church that every young pastoral couple should come to. It really, I'm sure it still is, but I'm saying at that time it was the church. And grappling, grappling with, um, I don't know if they love me so much here. Um, I don't know if they're really for me here. Um, my grandmother that I'm named after, the one who prayed for hours every morning, she died right after I arrived there. I couldn't come back. I mean, we lived in Rodeo Drive, basically, in Walnut Creek, California. I mean, just survival out there was really hard. Just to make ends meet was hard. And all of a sudden, all of this bravado or whatever that I had always had, it just started crumbling. And I said to John, I feel like the foundation, my foundation has just been kicked out from under me. And then I realized at that moment, who was I relying upon? Brave heart, loving heart not afraid of anything. And that is where God took me and he grew me and loved me and nurtured me and helped me to realize things about his character. I kind of felt like Moses in those days, who me? I can't do this, I'm not, I'm not up to the task. I lost 57 pounds in seven weeks after we arrived there and I wasn't particularly big. But it's like everything about my comfort level, my comfort zone, it's just going away. I smile too much and I don't wear the right clothes and I don't know the California thing. And if there's anyone from California, I grew to love California after I went through this really difficult time. Um, knowing God in ways and having to say to my husband, I don't know if I'm gonna make it here. Lord said, I'm here. I'm here. I've been here the entire time. And I asked John, or John came home, and we had a long talk. And I said, would you do me a favor? Would you drive me from Walnut Creek into San Francisco? It is the most magnificent sight that you could ever see. And John helped me into the car. And he took me 
to San Francisco and I saw it for the first time. I think I saw Jesus in a way that I had not ever experienced before. I wish I could tell you that I was the perfect pastor's wife. I wasn't. I wish I could tell you everybody liked my smile. Not everybody. But what I gained from that journey with Christ is indescribable. Um, I hope I continue to grow in Christ. Um, when I read this passage for the first time as a little girl, I think it applies to so many things. I thought of John, of course, but I think of it as just my, my pledge to the Lord, my, my desire for God at this stage of my life. And it's um, Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, very familiar. I will go wherever you go and live wherever you live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. I will die where you die and will be buried there. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And I apply this to the Lord. Where you send me, I want to go. What you want to do in my life, accomplish in my life, I want that. I just want to glorify you. I just want to love your world. And I want to be obedient to your call. My turn. Um, I don't think I need to be up here after what Liz has shared, but you know, those of you who know me know I won't pass up an opportunity <laughs> to share with you. Uh, I noticed uh, Liz the first time she came to that church, and I was the associate pastor there, and. Uh, it was a large church of about 700, and I noticed her just like that. So uh, it was me as well. And uh, I can say this, you know, she talked about that uh, police sergeant querying her as they were driving along. What was the number of that car? What kind of car? How many passengers? And how alert she was. Well, unfortunately, she's still that way. <laughs> Trying to sneak something by Liz is like trying to sneak sunrise past a rooster. Yeah. Um, I don't want to go too much into my background. I was born in South Africa. My parents were born in England. Um, my grandparents went there with the De Beers Diamond Company and uh, settled in Kimberley, which was De Beers' headquarters, and that's where my mom, mom and dad met. Uh, I was born in the Johannesburg area in a place called Brackpan. Um, just talking with Dave Skinner here, who has, uh, living, is living in South Africa, so he knows where I was born. And um, 
I was there during the apartheid era. I grew up uh, during the apartheid era, not when I was born, but later on. Uh, the art architect of uh, apartheid, that hated system that is decried by practically everybody in the world, uh, the architect was um, a man by the name of Hendrik Verwurt, and he was the prime minister of uh, the uh, Nationalist Party. We were, the English were a different party. And um, I, I just remember once my dad and I went to what was called the Rand Easter Show in Johannesburg every year. And it was a highlight. It was like a big world fair shrunk down for South Africa. All industry, agriculture, everything you could think of was on display. And for a little kid, that was great. I was about 14 that year, and my dad and I were going to go to a special program that was going to take place in the amphitheater. And uh, so we were heading over there, and then we heard this person droning on. It was for Wurt speaking in Afrikaans, and uh, he just went on and on and on. So we went in. He was supposed to have been done about 15 minutes earlier. We went in and got his seat not too far from the dais where he was speaking. And after a while, I heard a gunshot, and uh, I saw crowds rush around, and I said to my dad, somebody shot for vote. Sure enough, it was uh, an Englishman by the name of David Pratt. He stepped up and shot him at point-blank point range, but I think it was a small caliber uh, gun uh, because the bullet got into his head and lodged there, and he was able to continue to be prime minister until a number of years later he was assassinated in Cape Town. But the story that went around was that um, David Pratt was the only Englishman who ever got anything into Furwood's head that stayed there for any <laughs> Anyway, we left South Africa during the apartheid year, moved to Canada, and then I came to the United States uh, for my graduate, well, to finish up my college education, do my graduate studies at uh, Trinity and, um, and so forth. Uh, what I want to get to and what I'm here for is just to share some of the greatest events in my personal story. And uh, they're not from my childhood. Uh, I suppose they are, but the ones I want to share with you uh, are fairly recent in the last 20 years or so. And one is a focus on the great commandment. Remember the uh, man who came up to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the first and the greatest is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Uh, Matthew just said, says your heart and soul and mind. And that is from the book of Deuteronomy. 
remember the Israelites were now, when you get to Deuteronomy, which is the second statement or presentation of the law of God to his people, the wilderness sojourn had ended. That generation of unbelievers had died in the desert. They were poised at the Jordan, ready to cross into the new land. No longer would they have Moses with them to um, guide them in every little thing. They were going to go across and they were going to scatter throughout the whole land according to their tribal designations. And so Moses was telling them, this is what you've got to do. I'm not going to be with you. The temple isn't even going to be very close to some of you, the tabernacle at, the, at that time. So these are the things you've got to do as families. Love the Lord your God. It's, it's called the Shema. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and then goes on to say, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And you know, that has not expired. It is still the most important thing for us. Um, you know, it doesn't just say you shall love the Lord your God. It says heart and soul and mind and strength, that tells me with the totality of your being, what would you think if a man says about his wife, he's having an affair by the way, he says, oh, I love her. I love her with my mind. But this other person has won my heart. Is that love? It's got to be the totality. And if we love God, we can't just have an intellectual love for God and say, I know who God is, and yes, I love God. It's got to be part of our whole being, uh, our intellect, our spiritual being, our emotional attachment to God. That's a command. That's what we aspire to. I had never contemplated the detail of that until a number of years ago. And now it's with me all the time. Every time I get on my knees to pray, that is part of my prayer. Love the Lord my God. Lord, help me to love you with the totality of my being. Um, and then the second commandment, uh, Jesus says, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's not taken from Deuteronomy. That's from the book of Leviticus, where uh, Moses is telling the people, uh, as God directs him, uh, that you shall love the stranger among you, because you too were aliens in a strange land when they were in Egypt. And so, You've got to love the immigrant. And so this church, I think, is one that I think of that God has used to demonstrate you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
in a special sense in which it applied in the biblical era, the immigrant among you, people who are not like you, people you don't understand who have a different heritage, and it's easier to say, oh, we don't want to get to know them. They're not like us. God's word says you've got to love them as yourself. That's part of practical Christian living. Uh, let me go on now from the greatest commandment, and I, I have to share this because it's so much a part of who you are and who I am, and that is global missions. I was raised among missionaries, but I was not a missionary. Uh, my family was not a missionary family, as I told you. They were there with De Beers and then the Anglo-American Corporation and so forth. Uh, so we always entertained and had missionaries stay in our home, mostly from the United States and Canada. And a little boy growing up, uh, I watched all of this. There was one missionary in particular, a man by the name of John Garlock, must have... Uh, and being a man of substance, because every time he came back to South Africa from being in the United States on furlough, he would bring on the boat with him the latest car. And I remember once he showed up with this DeSoto. Those of you who are older remember the DeSoto, beautiful car. It was a two-tone, white and yellow. And it had this antenna. You could push a button, and the antenna would go up, push it, and it'd go down. And I wanted to be a missionary. <laughs> and, you know, then I came to the United States, and I was involved at Trinity and, and uh, the church and, and that sort of thing. And I recognized that that wasn't really what it was about. But it had never caught a hold of my heart. But one, uh, I think, uh, a special awakening in me occurred at the church where I met Liz. It was a, quite a missionary-minded church. And there was some missionaries from the Niger Republic working among the desert nomads. And they, their names were the Paternosters. The most beautiful woman I ever saw in my life was Pat Paternoster. She lived her life in the desert. They traveled from place to place. That was their home, a Land Rover, with a platform on top that they would pitch their tent on at night, and they traveled with the nomadic people. She was so burned, her face was full of, of wrinkles. But the beauty of Christ shone through that woman. And that convinced me that, you know, missions is given having the right priority. It redefines beauty. It, re it define, redefines so much of life when we get a grasp of what global missions is. Um, 
I was uh, in Japan on one occasion. I uh, was served on the Evangelical Free Church Missions Board, and I was invited to speak uh, by the pastor, Dr. Uchida, at the Soka Evangelical Free Church. Well, <clears throat> he spoke English very well. He had his PhD and from the United States, but most of his congregation didn't speak any English. And the homes were so tiny, and he had four kids, so he couldn't accommodate me as an overnight speaker. So I arrived on Saturday. He said, I'm going to put you with family in the church. They've only been Christians for about five months. They were Buddhists before. Um, but they're a wonderful family, and I'll come with you, and I'll translate for you, and then I'll leave, and you can go to bed, and they'll serve you breakfast in the morning. Well, that was uh, Tatsuo and Mieko Iriuchijima. I still remember their names well. And um, I went to bed. I, we made some gestures before, you know, turning in. And I went to bed, woke up in the morning to the sound of singing. They had four children. And uh, you know what they were singing? I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Sing it, it in Japanese, but the tune was the same. It's like, wow! Four months ago, five months ago, this was a Buddhist family who knew nothing about Jesus. And here they're singing, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Folks, that's global missions, just a little snapshot of it. I, I was invited because of my involvement with several mission boards to be a delegate to uh, JACOI, which was the Global Consultation on World Evangelization in 1995 in Seoul, Korea. And they were delegates from 187 countries of the world that were invited. Some of them special offerings were taken if you went from a more prosperous country Part of your fee was to be able to get some of these barefoot evangelists to be able to come and uh, experience what it was to be part of God's great family on the earth. And um, one afternoon we were having a plenary session and um, at some point in it, the one who was leading in worship sang a simple song about Jesus Christ being Lord. And um, the leader had somebody beside him who was translating into one of the languages. Of course, you know, it's, he couldn't do more than one, uh, with, um, but there were so many languages there. And so he asked this person to sing it in his language. And then all of a sudden, spontaneously, there was a row of people that just found their way up to the pulpit. And as that one stepped aside, the next one sang the words, in their language, Jesus is Lord. A long, long row of them went down the platform to the front, people just joining in. I gotta get my language in there.
singing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I thought, wow, isn't that a foretaste of heaven before the throne? And God gave me that. And so if you ever think that world missions and reaching out to people who are not like us here in the United States and elsewhere is something that is semi-passé now. Please rethink it. This is the heart of what Christ has called us to do. And um, this church had a great influence on me in that regard. Am I done? Okay. <laughs> That's a good finishing point. I was going to share some trivial things, but they don't matter. So thank you very much. <laughs> For those that didn't hear, have I ever regretted that I didn't learn the piano? Absolutely. My sister that I mentioned, she's just blessed by her own personal time on the piano. So yes, I do. doesn't bother me much because I'm not into music. If I'm in the car, I listen to talk radio, but <laughs> one of those guys. But I would enjoy it, I'm sure. There was a question or comment. Oh, I'm just not familiar with your son, Desmond. He's in Rhode Island. We're going to be going next week to be with them. Uh, we see them uh, at least a couple of times a year. They're a boy and a girl. Wrigley Michael and uh, Lucy Elizabeth after Liz, and um, Wrigley after Wrigley Field. Uh, I tell him he's named after a stick of gum. <laughs> but they're nine years old and they're wonderful. A lot of FaceTime and, uh, and uh, just they're so excited about us coming. Uh, Diz's wife, Molly, is an attorney, but she's a stay-at-home mom, and so uh, she spends a lot of time with the kids, as does Diz. He can pretty much set his own schedule, and he makes sure he's got enough time for his kids. He's very handsome, too. <laughs> Yes? What do you think is one of the key focuses that, um, or maybe challenges that are facing the American church for now, today? Um, one of them is uh, something I did want to address, and, and that is uh, nominalism. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people in churches, you know the parable of Jesus, 
I'm sorry, I should have repeated it. What would I say is, what would we say is one of the major challenges to the church in America today? Um, Jesus talked about the wheat and the weeds, and I think that is true of churches. Um, I sometimes say the nicest people in the world and the nastiest people in the world I have found in churches, both of them. I have not seen in society the uh, animosity and wicked treatment of people that I have seen in some churches. And I say, Lord, how can these people be your children? And um, then I go to the book of Corinthians and where Paul lambasts them, you know, basically says your meetings do more harm than good. And then a little while later says, but you are the body of Christ and every one of you a member. And I would say, say what? These same people. And so I have to have a much more generous attitude. God alone knows whether people are Christians and are not living as they ought to be for him, but they belong to him. And you know, it's not a case of the prodigal son, it's a case of the prodigal father. The prodigal father, prodigal means excessively generous and kind and, and so forth. That's the father, not the son. And uh, so our father is the prodigal father who loves all people and so, but I still think the, the biggest challenge is, you know, sometimes people get onto church boards and positions of influence and they're not using scriptural principles. John, both you and I are foreign born. Yeah. We're from other nations. <laughs> about the immigrants coming to this nation. Unpack some of that from a biblical perspective and the opportunities that America gives to them, to, to immigrants and refugees. Yeah. Well, first, I think it is a great opportunity, and I know that that has factored in very prominently in the last, what, 20, 25 years into the life of faith church, very much focused on that. Uh, I think we'll go back to the Old Testament where as Israel traveled and uh, they picked up people from other nations and they were told they had to treat them with respect the way they would treat everybody else. And um, you know, there were some restrictions. They were not allowed into the temple precincts if they were not, uh, you know, Jewish. But uh, that's a minor thing. Then you get to the New Testament and you, you look at Paul and at Barnabas and uh, their, their travels to, to reach the people. Um, and then the day of Pentecost, you know, that's, that's an amazing thing in which God says, 
my blessing is going to be upon all people. And, and that is the message of the gospel. Jesus kept saying, the, you know, to you and, your, and those who are far off and, and so forth. On the day of Pentecost, all those languages as a testimony to the fact God is working among the immigrant people. Dave, I'm sure you could share more than I could on this regard, but thank you for the good question. <laughs> thank you guys so much. Thank you. So we are running a little short on time, so um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and dismiss us for this morning and give you a preview. Next week is uh, Jerry and Rebecca Risser, and they're going to be speaking on our timing, God's timing, zero to three kids in 10 months. So come back for that one, and um, thank you all for coming. And there's discussion questions on the table. Feel free to you know, read through those and discuss a little bit um, as you have time. So thank you, guys.